It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. So the question I'm going to start by asking you, I'm going to start the show asking you is, have you ever wondered why humans, why we compare ourselves to others, and why so many of us are addicted to approval seeking? Hmm. The short answer is, we've inherited the brain of mammals who behave that way. Okay, I hope I've sparked your interest because we're going to talk a lot about this. Um, in today's special guest, Dr. Loretta Bruning's book, Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop, she shines a light on the brain processes that encourage us to seek higher status. She teaches us how to rewire those connections for more contentment and less stress. No more worrying about keeping up with the Joneses. Your new way of thinking will blaze new trails to your happy hormones, and you will relax. Dr. Loretta Braziano-Burning, PhD, is a globally renowned brain chemistry expert. She is founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and Professor Emeritus of Management at California State University, East Bay. Her many prior books on mammalian brain chemistry have been translated into 10 languages and cited in major media. She has helped thousands of enthusiastic fans to make peace with their inner mammal. <laughs> okay, well, good morning, Loretta. Welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Hi, nice talking to you. <laughs> it's nice talking to you, too. Okay, um, Start off. I want to start off with um, how you got interested in this topic because it seems to be very specific and really different. Uh, yes, it is very different. It's not what you hear at all in academic psychology. And the simplest answer is watching nature videos. But there was a whole century of research on the competitiveness of animals. And that is just completely ignored today. And when I stumbled on that in uh, nature videos, I was stunned. And so I started looking for more and more information. And I was a professor of management, and I was a mother, and I thought, like, wow, this is the truth. This is really the way people act. So that's why I started studying it further. It, and it, it's so fascinating. So. We are mammals. We all know that we're mammals, but we really don't think of ourselves as mammals. Uh, but you say that humans are status conscious because animals are status conscious and that we've inherited the brain structures that motivate them. So what do you mean by that when you say that um, they're status conscious and we've inherited this brain structure? 
So our emotions come from our limbic system, which is a set of structures that all mammals have in common. And good feelings come from chemicals that all mammals have in common, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. And when you know how they work in animals, you say, wow, that's like weirdly similar to my daily life. And the one that this, my other books focus on all of the chemicals and how to get more of them, but this book focuses specifically on serotonin because that's the one that rewards you with a good feeling when you see yourself in the one-up position. And animals want that because they can't eat or uh, reproduce unless they're in the one-up position because if they're in the one-down position, then they will get bitten if they reach for food or mating opportunity. So they're constantly comparing themselves to others and looking for the opportunity to be one up. And when they are, serotonin is released, and they go for it, and it feels good. And that's what we're looking for. We have inherited that. Hmm. So when you talk about status-seeking, what do you mean by that? How do we, how do, does everybody have that tendency to seek status? Yes, but people do it in different ways. And putting yourself at the bottom is the modern way to do it. Like, I'm more self sacrificing than you are. I'm more virtuous than you are, which is just an indirect way of doing it. So the way I mean it, in the animal world, there's no big human cortex. So they have no abstract thinking or they're not concerned about carrying on their genes. They just want to feel good. So they only compare themselves to the ones right next to them in that moment. So we humans are um, making abstractions with our big brains, but our brains are really focused on comparing to whoever's in our immediate world. But whoever's in your immediate world depends on the neural pathways that you built when you were young. So, for example, if you grew up and your parents were always comparing themselves to X, then you wired yourself to constantly compare yourself to X. And many people are constantly listen to the news. Other people are focused on some other reference group. So it's a choice. Hmm. Okay, that's you know, and I read that in your book, and I do have that um, that flag. So we're going to go into that a little bit deeper. So you say that we've inherited a brain designed to monitor threats. How? So obviously, in the animal kingdom, and there or the mammal kingdom, let's say, there are constant threats. They're they're always it's a survival. Um, they have the survival instinct. So how does that threat um, monitoring, what does that have to do with us? How do we, why would status seeking be related to monitoring threats? So when an animal sees that it's in the one up position, it feels good, as I said, but when it sees that it's in the one down position, it sees that as a threat. So if you watch your nature videos, when a little monkey grabs for food near a bigger monkey or grabs for mating opportunity, it's going to get bitten. And getting bitten is is a big threat. So that is um, reacted in the brain with cortisol. Cortisol is what we call the stress chemical. So if you are always comparing yourself to others and putting yourself below them, you're triggering your cortisol and stressing yourself. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, you said there's um I'm just going through your book as I've flagged it. You may insist that you do not think this way. Of course you do not think it in words. You think it with chemicals and with wiring built from experience. And you say that if we, this is so true, if we acknowledge our one-up urge, we feel like a bad person. So we focus on the urge in people we don't like. They are much worse. (laughs) Um, How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, there are so many different ways. Um, But first to say that although it's uncomfortable to acknowledge your one-up urge, the alternative is worse because if you say, I don't think that way, then you always feel like other people are judging you because you don't see that you're doing the judging. So there's the positive in all of this that I'm going for is when you say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly judging too, then you have control over it. But if you always think they're doing the judging and they're the ones that are putting themselves above you, um, you project onto them. Like one person thinks, oh, they think I'm too fat. Another person says, oh, they think I'm stupid. Another person says they think I'm poor. Whatever is the the game that you are playing, you put it onto them. Hmm. So we all do it. It's, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, hum- it's humbling to accept that. It really is because we all want to think that we're not judgmental. And, and yet, you know, you're saying that this is in our chemistry. This is the way we're wired. So it, that's, that sort of takes away the shame of, of the feeling that we are doing this. Um, so there's different games for different brains, and so you named a few of them, but things like um, my car is better than your car, my ethics are better than your ethics, my abs are better than your abs, my intelligence is better than yours, my partner is hotter than your partner. <laughs> I get more love than you get. My Oh, this is a good one. My hardships are harder than your hardships. I like that one. Um, <laughs> I can control you. That's another one. Okay, so there's, there's so many of them in here, but these are all things I think we can really relate to as far as uh, how, how we actually do this in our lives. So what do we want to do to, is there a way to, I don't like the word control, curb maybe? Is there a way to curb it or is this something that we should be doing naturally? Uh, yes, they're uh, both in a way. So there is a way to curb it, redirect it. I call redirecting it. Um, okay. What we should be doing naturally is we need that serotonin to feel good. So that means we need to feel one up. But you don't want to be a jerk because there's consequences for being a jerk. So how can you be one up without, a, without being a jerk? That is difficult. That is the challenge of life, which is why status gets so much of our attention. Now, first is to be aware of the wiring that you already have. And each one of us is wired by early experience. None of us is born wired. Like a baby is not born speaking any language, and yet within a couple of years, It's wired to speak. So your emotional responses of like who you're comparing yourself to, that's wired when you were young. And those neural connections are real physical highways in your brain. And you use them 
just the way if I want to get from one place to another, I can't just go in a straight line. I use the, the highways that exist. So uh, how can we build new highways in our brain so that we don't just endlessly repeat those old comparisons that we made in high school? And I talk a lot in the book about high school because that's our peak of neuroplasticity. And the sad answer is repetition. So if you repeat a new way of thinking a lot, then you will, um, uh, that will start to feel normal. So if I find a way myself up without putting others down, then I can stimulate my serotonin um, without being a jerk. So can we call this maybe self-love, self-esteem, self-worth, without uh, putting yeah. ourselves up? Yes, but we have to be very careful about how we do it because um, a lot of people do it in this way that leads to resentment. It's like, I'm important too. How come nobody realizes how important I am? I deserve something. And you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's all yes. victory. <laughs> so what I'm saying is you actually have to do something that you're proud of. You, and from an animal perspective is you have to have confidence in your own strength because that's what makes an animal survive is that when it compares its strength to the strength of the guys next to it, it's like, okay, I got it going on. And that's what we need. So you have to actually do things that give you confidence in your own strength but not using strength necessarily in the physical way. Okay. So this is really good because it, it, it explains a lot of uh, when I work with people who have um, suffered narcissistic abuse and they're trying to overcome it, one of the things that they really have to do is embrace themselves, love themselves, like themselves really is basically, you know, what you're mm-hmm. saying. It's not like not saying, you know, uh, you did this to me and I'm better or whatever. It's not a comparison, but really just loving yourselves and liking yourselves and treating yourselves well is really one of the, the main way that we get over this. But it is difficult. And so you're really explaining why. Because So I've always explained it like, you know, you've driven down the same road for like 20 years and there's these grooves in the road. And so your car just naturally goes in them and you just keep driving and driving and the grooves get, you know, deeper and deeper, the rut. Um, and I say, well, we need to make a new road. And so it's basically the same kind of thing, but you explain it so much better. Uh, so, but it Thank is, it's, a, it's about repetition. Can it's I about, explain a little yes. bit more? I would love about that. how these pathways form. So our brain, as I said, it's, desired, it's designed to be wired by experience, and it's designed to be wired whenever your chemicals flow. So whenever your happy chemicals flow, your brain is saying, this is good, get more of it. Whenever your unhappy chemicals flow, your brain wants to learn that too so you know what to avoid. So our neurons connect. You could think of our happy chemicals and our unhappy chemicals as paving on our neural pathways. So when you were young, whatever made you feel one up, that built neural pathways that tell you this is the way to seek one up feelings in the future. So you know the story about the person who kicks a goal in a soccer game or the person who has the lead in a high school play or even the person who's the class clown And then they are forever trying to feel important in that way because 
That's the way they know. Now, the other mm. part of it is a thing called myelin. Um, myelinization is when you're young, it's like you have extra paving material. So whatever you learn when you're young builds a super large highway in your brain. And it's very hard to avoid those pathways later on because they're so efficient. So I explained it would be like if you're trying to go through the jungle and there's no path there at all and you have to cut each step, it's so much work that you just want to use the pathways that are there, and that's what our early experience is like. Oh, wow. Okay, great explanation. You say that uh, our brain is designed to focus on the unmet need. When you have physical safety and social support, the urge for status gets your attention. So the unmet need, how, how does that I'm sure that you've explained it, but you, in, the, in those words, how would you explain what our unmet needs are and why we focus on them? Sure. Well, our ancestors had a very hard time meeting their need for food, water, just getting enough firewood to stay warm, you know, sleeping in a world full of predators. How do you find salt? How do you find nutrition? When, you know, if you only find one food group, then you'll get malnutrition. So it was such a struggle just to stay alive. Then, then they didn't have birth control, so they were always having more babies. They didn't have doctors. So it was so hard to stay alive that they didn't have that much energy to obsess over whether, um, the, the, you know, the caveman next door had a better axe, you know. <laughs> but then one once all of your physical needs are met, so then we also have this need for, you know, in the modern world, it's called belonging. We really want the protection of a herd. So when you're isolated, then you fear predators and you look for the protection of a herd. But as soon as you have that, then you may be at the bottom of the herd. And that really gets on your nerves. You're, I want to rise in the herd. So then being at the bottom of the herd really bothers you because all of your other needs are met, and now your energy can be invested in meeting that need. And evolutionary biology and nature videos show us clearly that as the individual, as the monkey rises in the hierarchy, they, have, they make more copies of their genes. They have more surviving offspring. And natural selection builds a brain designed to reward you with a good feeling when you do things that spread your genes, and it alarms you with the stress chemical when that effort to spread your genes fails. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm thinking about, you know, people that go through infertility and, and that kind of thing. Oh. That's such a, yeah. an, so a hard thing. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not conscious because obviously monkeys don't understand what genes are, but when you do anything related to reproductive success, which is the word used in biology. So, for example, on a day when your hair looks good, you feel good because that you have related that to reproductive success in your mm-hmm. brain. You know, on a day when you think you look bad, then you think you're – you see what I'm getting at? You're unattractive, and you would you won't attract a mate or or something like that. Exactly. That would, okay. Yes, exactly. So, however you have defined it, 
Now, a big one is, just to use a funny example, your kids' SAT scores, okay? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. Is people have strong feelings about this because for your child to get a good mate and then have children who survive, you're always trying to optimize that. And because your other needs are met, that's the only thing you have to worry about. So you obsess over that. So a person who is infertile will find some other way of uh, uh, however they've connected it in their brain um, that what I call it in the book is that your unique individual essence will survive. So how would they do that? How would somebody do that? So I humorously say that if you knit, you can, you know, and you invent a new stitch and everyone in your knitting club um, remembers your stitch or, you know, people have a sandwich named after them at the local <laughs> sandwich shop. <laughs> so right. people are always looking for ways to memorialize themselves. Um, I, I jokingly say if you have your favorite recipe, get it laminated and give it to your grandchildren, you know, so it's, People want to do something that will last. I say if you're a carpenter and you create a good solid chair, that chair will last longer than you last. So people are always wanting to invest themselves in something that lasts. And this relieves that deep anxiety that humans have about our own mortality because animals don't know they're immortal. They just invest all their energy in trying to reproduce. So amazing. It's so amazing how close we are to, um, well, we are yeah. mammals, but how, we, how close we are to the animal world. So this is, this is I mean, you really do a great job of, of explaining how close we are. And, and so under ambition, you say that um, your ambition may get a bad reaction from your groupmates. So this is so true. Um, so it makes people it makes people it causes us to want to diminish who we are so that we don't get that bad reaction unless we are truly narcissistic and we want to stand out but many people don't want to stand out they want to be in the group but they don't want that judgment so what is that about well, we want all of these chemicals and once you have this group acceptance you want to stand out once you only focus on standing out, then the group may not like you, and then you may not get the chemical of acceptance, which is oxytocin. So all of these chemicals are metabolized in a short time. So, you know, when you have people put their arms around you and say, hey, we're really buddies, we're going to stick together, that feels good, but that chemical is gone a few minutes later. So that's why we're always wanting to, like, oh, I want to re-stimulate this one. I want to re-stimulate that one. That's why we have this treadmill feeling. And yet, maybe one person is better at stimulating this one, and another person is better at stimulating that one. So on the one hand, we miss the one we don't have, but then we don't really know how to get it, and we fear failing. So that's why some people only focus on being one of the crowd and other people only focus on one-upping others, but really we all want all of them. Really? We do, huh? We all want that. So how does this work in love relationships or in dating or 
uh, how does it apply there? Yeah, that's a $50 million question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very complicated. Um, And I should mention that chapter one of my introductory book, Habits of a Happy Brain, has a whole section on love. So love triggers all of the happy chemicals because it's so darn relevant to reproductive success. That was nature's um, motivator to get you to do what's necessary to create young that survive. So um, just to go to when you said my partner is hotter than your partner, (laughs) get right to the point of of this book, nobody wants to admit uh, all of this social comparison thing. Now, a core feature of the mammal brain is common enemies. That's what gives us that group bonding feeling, just our... um, You said like with ambition, like if you are in a group but you want to get ahead and other people in the group feel like you're getting ahead of them, so then they might not like you because you're making them feel one down. The way people bond in groups is to focus on a common enemy. So as long as you hate whoever they hate, so you could hear groups talking constantly about their constant enemy. So in dating and marriage relationships, people often have a common enemy. So we both hate X. So that's (laughs) one foundation of a relationship. And then another foundation of a relationship is my partner makes me feel one up because let's say, you know, famous example, if your partner is rich, that makes you look good. If your partner is beautiful, that makes you look good. If your partner um, is socially connected, that makes you feel good. So no one, again, likes to admit that they're doing this, but there's a lot of that going on. And these are all the things that um, attract narcissists to their targets, all the things that you just mentioned. Either they're more educated or they have money or they're beautiful or something. There's something that they want to get from that person. Uh, It's it's very interesting. Hmm. Yes. And so um, my books are all about taking responsibility for your own choices. So it may seem like someone is a narcissist, but if you are wanting status from them or something you want something from them and then you're frustrated because you don't get it from them you have to acknowledge you're wanting something that's what's your driver Mm. okay so we have to look at ourselves in this so even if we've been targeted then we have to really see what's driving us to how we what drove us to get into this in the first place what drives us to stay in it Right, and then to know that you don't need it because either you can meet that need without that or you could just have a a good attitude of saying, I want status, but I don't really need it, and I can give myself status in some other way. Okay, that's really a good, that's that's a very good point. Hmm. So thought-provoking, I'm just, I keep finding myself going into into thought. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about <clears throat> let's talk about stress because uh, I mentioned to you before we went on air that many of the people who are listening, many of my clients too, 
are suffering from PTSD or complex PTSD because it's been years of programming, years of um, triggers and things like that. So what is actually going on with that? And why do we have these physiological reactions to, to triggers? So our brain is really designed to learn from threat. People have probably heard this before, but, you know, when our ancient ancestors saw a predator, a bad feeling, cortisol surge, and that wired in everything going on at that moment, connected all those neurons so that you could more easily recognize a predator in the future. So the next time you're in a place, it's like, "Uh uh-oh, there are predators in this kind of environment. So animals without words, without conscious cognition, they can identify, oh, this is the type of, of environment that's likely to be dangerous. So whenever a person has had bad experiences in their past, they built neural pathways that when they see something similar in the future, turns on the bad feeling quickly, their brain is trying to warn them that the same predator is likely to be there. So it's, it's hard to get over these things. I have a different, excuse me, I have a different book about that called Tame Your Anxiety, but happy to mm. talk about that. Okay, good. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so, so, so how do we, I mean, I know it's not easy, but so we can change, uh, we can stop our reactions to these triggers by doing what? How would we do that? Well, the first step, again, is to know that it's just a pathway and to, see, to identify the pattern from your past and how you're imposing that template on the present so that when you see anything slightly, like the simplest example is when your boss says to you, we need to have a talk, and a person goes into a full panic because they're projecting onto that person like the worst thing that's happened to them. And everybody does this. When you wake up in the morning, your brain activates like the worst thing that happened to you yesterday because (laughs) that's how your brain is um, preparing to meet the threats of your environment. That's the job it evolved to do. So the solution always is to build new neural pathways. And the answer of how to do that is always repetition. So what is the way you would like to respond to your environment? So to say, when my boss says we need to have a talk, what would I like to think? Well, I'd like to think that I'm a skilled person that can survive with or without his approval, let's just say. And I need to think that many times a day, Then you could set a timer and just spend 10 seconds thinking that, but you have to think it in a way that you really believe it. So if you go off into some angry tirade, I'm a skilled person and he's such a jerk for not noticing it, nobody notices my talents, blah, blah, blah. You see how I just spun off into the negative, which is not noticing my talents. So it's having positive a focus on my strengths, however I come to perceive them, but I have to really do something that gives me confidence in my own survival skills. Because that's what my inner mammal wants, that protection of my own survival skills. This is really, this is really positive. This is a really good thing to know. 
for really for everybody because I think yeah everybody yeah. has triggers everybody has this this these these pathways that were the you know that that developed in our childhood because our parents imprint themselves onto us sometimes exactly. it's not some, sometimes it's uh, some of the things are positive some of the things are not because they're exactly. not perfect right yeah mm. so. So we really all have areas in which we um, should stop and take a look at and realize why we're acting or reacting the way that we are. And I like the fact yeah. that, we, that we can then, it's not so much an affirmation, it's really a positive thought. It's a, it's a, it's a thought about um, this is not, you know, I don't need this anymore because I have such and such. I am such and such. I do such and such. And that is no longer going to concern me. But that repetition is what makes people scared because they think, okay, well, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it every day for a week. And then it's supposed to be gone. (laughs) But it's not, you know, because it takes a while. Neuroplasticity is Explain to everybody, I know what it is, but explain to everybody what neuroplasticity is. Yeah, so I explain it in a way that's different from a lot of what academic psychology is doing because they're focusing on the fact that you grow new neurons throughout life. And, um, but those neurons are not connected to anything. So it's really about the connections. So the electricity in your brain flows like water in a storm. It finds the paths of least resistance. So if you have a response to the world around you, like, like oh, something's going on, i got to do something, what should I do? Your electricity is just going to flow into the pathways you have. So if you don't create a new pathway, you're going to use the old pathways. But when you create a new pathway, it's like a tiny little trail that you've just carved in the Amazon with your machete. And that doesn't flow as easily as a big highway in the Amazon. But the big highways in the Amazon go to ugly cities. So if you want to go to a beautiful place, you have to take out your machete and do that labor of cutting through your jungle of neurons again and again and again, and then you establish a little dirt trail. And then with maturity, you can constantly choose to take the little dirt trail rather than the paved highway. That makes so much sense. It's really, it's really very helpful. What about, how does this apply to addiction? Because addiction, well, I mean, I, I can see where it would be the same thing because addiction is going after these feel-good chemicals over and over and over again. Um, why is it so hard for people that have substance abuse to, to change that? So, um, first, As I said, the brain is uh, wired from rewards. So when you had your first taste of pizza or ice cream when you were young and your brain said, wow, that's good. So um, when you had your first, like, invitation to a party, you know, anything that felt good and your brain said, wow, that's good, get me more of that. So without conscious thinking, you built pathways from rewards, and then you look for that. Now, addiction is when the reward is something that's not natural. So you're getting so much more reward than you would get from a natural activity like 
cooking real food or having a real um, date with a friend. So that builds a much bigger pathway that tells your brain, this is the way to go. This is the solution to happiness. So that's one half of it. The other half of it is that the biggest reward from our brain's perspective is relieving a threat. So if our ancestors were hungry and they looked and looked for food and then they finally found an egg corn, they were so happy. So that egg corn was like the most fabulous thing. So when you were young and you were sad for some reason, whatever you did to lift yourself in that moment, your brain thinks that's it. That's the most fabulous thing in the world. So for one kid, it was video games. For another kid, it was comic books. For another kid, it was, you know, food. Another kid, it was dieting. Whatever you did to distract you from bad feelings. So in the animal world, when you're hungry, you have to find real food. When, when you're chased by a predator, you have to find safety. But we humans, we imagine predators. And then when we distract ourselves with video games, you stop thinking about the predator. You know, if you like another person in high school and they don't like you back, and then when you play a video game, you can't think about that. So that distractor saves you from the predator, from your mammal brain's perspective. And that, again, is a huge reward, so it builds a huge pathway. So why do some people become addicted and and others, why do some people have this um, propensity for addiction and other people don't. Um, Is it related to situations in life or is it, um, or or were they, well, you said they weren't born that way. We aren't, we aren't born that way. So I guess sometimes things, our past can be so painful that it's just, we just don't want to look at it. And so we do try to find the quick way to avoid it. And um, I get- well, <clears throat> well, it's it's actually very hard to learn healthy ways to manage bad feelings. So there's nothing like automatic about mental health. You have to learn mental health, and I think it's common not to learn it because it's just hard to learn. So well, today, uh, many people are learning bad habits. And that doesn't mean that their lives were so painful. So I don't really think, I I know that this sort of trauma victim perspective is very popular, but I think sometimes it's just um, people are exposed to bad ways of managing this brain we've inherited, and they're not exposed to healthy ways. There are very few healthy ways. It's really quite hard. We have to learn them in time. And it's so much easier to learn unhealthy management strategies. And most people have one unhealthy habit or another and sort of a new idea that everything should be perfect all the time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right. I agree with you. Okay. I like that explanation. That makes sense. That really does make sense. And so then it would go to follow that if we have role models that, help us to understand our environment and to learn about it uh, and to work through issues that are uncomfortable for us. That's why it's so important, I believe, for parents 
to really pay attention to what their children are going through and to give them every opportunity to learn how to cope rather than being helicopter parents who do everything for their children, let them have some things that they work through. I think that's really important because that would, that would relieve a lot of this, the issues that we have to deal with as adults, right? Yes. But also, you know, parents have their own problems. Parents care about their own status. Parents have, you know, rational worries about making ends meet. Parents have fears from their own past. So children are always taking that in. And sometimes when children have quite an easy protected life, they take on the pain of their parents because they want their parents to be happy and they try to make their parent by taking that on. So our brain hard to manage. Yeah, it is. It's so complicated. We're such complicated beings. Mm. Well, you know, the thing, here's the thing. The big human cortex, which does the verbal talking to yourself, is not very much connected to the mammal brain. So that's why the mammal brain does its thing uh, without the human cortex verbally understanding. It can't tell you in words what it's doing. So that's one whole layer of complication. And then another whole layer is, even your human cortex, it's wired by your past experience. So nobody consciously thinks that. So nobody says, oh, I'm mad at Susie because Susie said something that triggered past experience with someone who hurt me. Right, right. You say that lions fail 90% in 90% of their chases and they have to manage disappointment to survive. So we don't really think about the fact that animals get disappointed, but you're saying that they do. Yeah, this whole romanticizing of animals as if the state of nature is constantly happy and that something has gone wrong with our world, it's just absolutely false. So animals have very difficult survival challenges and constant frustration. And I use the example of um, lions fail most of the time when they chase a gazelle. And if you watch a nature video, you see how, like, the lion often goes a whole week without finding anything to eat or it kills something, and then hyenas come and steal it. And even lions have a very strict social hierarchy. So the young ones eat last. Um, the males eat first, and so you have to um, hold back your urgent desire for whatever, um, and they, they do. They deal with frustration and cortisol all the time. Like uh, the other one, like when a gazelle escapes a predator, but it still lives in a world full of predators, it can't have this, like, I'm not going out until the world is safe. So they manage. <laughs> right. Wow. Boy, is that apply to, uh, is that applicable to uh, what's going on now? That really yeah. is. Yeah. So we, we're all sort of, we're hiding, but we're hiding from the enemy, but, or, or the threat. And it's not going to help us by doing that. Right. Exactly. Do you have, do you exactly. have a feeling about, do you have a feeling about that, about what we're doing now and how that's affecting us? 
yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's gotten very politicized, and uh, people have very strong feelings on both sides. It's almost you know, dangerous to talk about, but I feel like um, the danger has been tremendously exaggerated and watching the news is just the worst thing for your mental health. If you watch the news, you are constantly exposed to this sense that everything is horrible and about to get worse. And if you feed yourself on that constantly, which so many people do, you're going to feel awful, and you're not even going to know why. And so many people are doing that. You're right. So many people are in fear. I'm not one of them. So I don't, um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't buy into any of that at all. No, it's, I'm not, I, I don't buy into fear. Um, in chapter seven, you talk about a healthy serotonin mindset. And so um, life in the middle lane. What does that look like for us? And is that really where we want to be? Uh, yes, that's where I um, talk about um, a simple way of managing this really complex talent. So if you want to be in the fast lane, we all understand the problem of that. And that would be like the person who has to be on top every minute, like, the minute they don't win the Scrabble game, they get all angry and upset, or if they don't win the tennis game. So, um, and, you know, needless to say, if they don't get every promotion or have the bigger car, whatever. So we all know how that can lead to unhappiness. And then the slow lane is where you just feel like everybody's passing you by and you never get anything you want. So the middle lane is where you make conscious choices of which moment, it's worth investing your energy in status. And status meaning the natural healthy urge to be special. Everybody wants to be special or important. And yet, if you run after everything, then you're just going to be miserable. So save your energy for, well, which, which opportunities to be important are worthwhile. So this requires a lot of thought, a lot of um, awareness, I would say, and mindfulness about yes. who we are and how we're thinking, right? And I, th- I think most people, until they become aware of these things, allow. I always tell people, don't allow your thoughts to run you. You run your thoughts because there's so many things that go on in our head that are just old, they're programming, um, they don't really help us out in our lives. But we've become accustomed to allowing those thoughts to really dictate who we are, to define who we are. And some people will say, well, that's just who I am, because they're holding on to these thoughts. So it really does require quite a bit of mindfulness. And I would imagine, um, though, at some point it gets a little bit easier. At first it's got to be really feel like you're doing the opposite of what you should be doing. But then does it get easier? Well, that's the whole idea is if you define, let's use the common expression like the new me. So whatever the person thinks is the new me, and if they define it and then repeat it, then it builds a pathway that's big enough that it starts to feel natural and their electricity just flows there. Okay. 
So, right. So eventually it's just, it just becomes natural. And so it's the same kind of feeling or the same kind of thought process, only it's the thoughts we've created and they're just there for us, right? They're just there. Yeah. You know, a very simple example is um, if you know anyone who quit smoking and, you know, one person constantly wants a cigarette and another person says, I don't even think about, I don't even think about smoking anymore. So the reason is that that person has found another way. Like you turn to a cigarette whenever you feel X. So then you make a plan. What else would I like to do whenever I feel X? And then you make the plan. And then if you repeat it, then whenever you feel bad or whenever you feel good or whatever it is, that you do this other thing and that builds a pathway and then and that's your new you. As long as it's not like eating too much or playing video games or whatever to escape. As long as it's not an escape mechanism, right? A healthy decision. That's the challenge challenge is that there are so few things that feel as good as unnatural stimulants. And so um, I I use um, variety. Like, for example, um, if you don't want to eat junk food and you just go and eat kale every day, you know, kale doesn't taste as good as what you were used to. So you have to give yourself some variety because that stimulates your dopamine and that helps you get excited because, yes, certain unnatural things are exciting. Hmm. So fascinating. Don't reward status games. So, This is really interesting because a lot of people, you say, romanticized view of the mammal brain. You may think you can win over an an uncooperative individual with generous rewards, or you assume they'll be nice if you're nice. What is this about, and how do we stop doing that? I know it's all really the same thing as far as, you know, thinking differently, but, but what are we thinking when we are trying to... Um, overhelp somebody or, you know, be nice so that they'll be nice. What exactly, what are we trying to do there? The simplest answer is the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And why does the squeaky wheel get the grease? Because you're, you're tired of hearing it squeak. <laughs> so whether it's a child in a classroom or a person on a committee at work, that um, the person who makes themselves difficult often gets more rewards than the person who's cooperative. And then you look around and you say, hmm, if I'm cooperative, I'm not going to get rewards. It seems like being difficult is what gets rewarded with this boss or this parent. And the brain is always learning from rewards. And mirror neurons are always observing how others get rewards. So that's sort of sad and uncomfortable and, and then extremely common. So if you're a parent or a boss, you really want to not reward bad behavior and especially not to do it in front of others. And how would this apply to raising children? Oh, so, and and first I have to say that I was as susceptible to this as anyone else. Like when your child screams for something that you think, well, I'll just let him have it because I don't want to cause conflict over something so small. So I'm going to be the bigger person and be flexible. So that's how I thought about it. But then you may teach the child that 
screaming is the way to get stuff. And if you do that, then what happens? Well, when they're on the playground with other children, they'll expect to get stuff from screaming, and they may get rejected by the other children, and then they don't know why. So you're actually um, bringing them more unhappiness in the long run in your quest to make them happy. Uh, of course, going to the other extreme isn't right, of where some parents say no to any, everything, and they're just sort of enjoying their own power. But I think it's the other, the one I said first, is more common today. Right. I agree with you. And then also in this chapter, you talk about variable reinforcement or intermittent rewards. And this is um, this interested me because this is one of the ways that um, people with narcissistic personality disorder um, get people to stay with them. They use these intermittent, this intermittent reinforcement to make them think that everything that they're doing prior to that uh, is just an illusion and the intermittent intermittent uh, yeah. reinforcement or the reward is really who they are. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you say if you yeah. reward bad behavior occasionally, you may think it couldn't do much harm. So what is, how, what is this about? So the simple example that many people have heard of is the, um, uh, the slot machine. So, if uh, they have done rat studies, like if rats get a reward by putting a, a token in a machine, it, they soon get bored and lose interest if they get the reward every time. <laughs> but if you want to get the reward some of the time, it, I'm thinking it's like buying a, a McDonald's Happy Meal that may have the right lotto card in it or not. I don't know. <laughs> so if you only get the reward some of the time, then you're, what do I got to do to get it? And that's motivating because that's how dopamine works. It's, it's, it's evolved to help you figure out and anticipate, oh, do I do this? Do I do this? And you're anticipating that your efforts will get rewarded, and that stimulates your dopamine. So trying to please the narcissist, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do this to please him, maybe I'll do that to please him or her. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. This is just so relevant to so many aspects of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, aspects of who we are is so relevant. I mean, this is brilliant, Loretta. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we're talking today about your book, Status Games, How We Play and How to Stop. And um, I just, um, I think you just did such a great job of explaining all these different aspects of us. And it, and it is so helpful to us and Thank so you. It, you know, I like it because it's another approach you know and I'm when I bring guests onto my show I always try to bring other approaches so that people can grab onto whatever resonates with them but this is very different and so I, I really appreciate you writing this book and educating us in this way it's fantastic and I really <laughs> hope you do well with it thank you so much it's a pleasure to hear that and happy to keep in touch yeah. Uh, so, so status games and we play, why we plan how to stop. Uh, is this available wherever books are sold? I would imagine. Exactly. It's available wherever books are sold, and uh, more information on my website, Inner Mammal Institute, uh, innermammalinstitute.org. Okay. Perfect. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we end the show? Something that maybe I didn't touch on. 
or something you want to leave us with? Well, I always uh, uh, remind people about social comparison. We talked a lot about that already. Um, You asked about the current situation. So, uh, and you said about fear, and I totally agree with you, but uh, people in my life are having a different interpretation, which is I'm more caring than you are. So um, by not going out and yielding to their fear, they're getting the one-up position that they're the more caring person. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's really a tough dilemma um, (laughs) uh, because each person is having that uh, conclusion that puts them in the one-up position and nobody wants to let go of the perspective that puts them in the one-up position. Very tough. That is so interesting. Didn't think about that. Yeah, the one-up, it really does. Everybody has some kind of holier-than-now opinion. Everybody has something like that. It doesn't matter what side of the argument you're on. Um, We all think that we're right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Where where do we go from here? I mean, how do we ever get out of this as a society? I mean, I know this is worldwide, but like how do we how does a society change this way of thinking when it's it's so div- divisive? Yes. Yes. Um it is. Um when I get frustrated about it, I remember like I watch interested in history and in the past Things were so much worse. You couldn't believe it in the sense of um, people being um, uh, 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 just killing each other all over the place, like constant wars. And, like, you couldn't leave your village because people in the next village would just kill any stranger who wasn't protected. So as bad as it seems, you know, it has been much worse. Okay. So we yeah. will survive it. We will come through. We will come yeah, through. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. all it's a matter of it it is hard it's to it's hard, hard to, to imagine it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thank know. you for that because that's a good way to think. Yes. It's true. I mean before people they they were brutal, you know, they beheaded people, they hung people, they you know, they didn't like you or they didn't like your point of view. I mean off exactly. with your head. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's what keeps me sane despite the frustration. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's a well, good I way have to another think. Meeting. Okay. It's great so it's, you. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's been great talking with you. I was just going I was just getting ready to say goodbye to you and to thank you again and have a great great day. Thank you. Take care. Keep in touch. Bye. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.